Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Stephen King cast, one man's musings on the works of Stephen King. Each week I'll review one entry in the bibliography of Stephen King in the chronological order of publication, and this week I'm looking at the novel that Stephen King believes is his best, a very personal examination on marriage, an introspective existential tale of love and loss, of inspiration and sacrifice, the emotionally charged Lisey's story. As you know, Stephen King is often criticized, by yours truly, of having his protagonists function within the story as writers. Write what you know is a hallmark of storytellers, and Stephen King certainly knows writing, so it's no surprise that when living up to this belief that he populates his novels with writer-protagonists. In the case of Thad Beaumont in The Dark Half, Mort Rainey in Secret Window, Secret Garden, and Paul Sheldon in Misery, the characters have to be writers. There are other cases where the protagonists don't have to be writers, and changing their profession wouldn't really alter the fundamental components of the story, such as such cases include Ben Mears from Salem's Lot, Bill Denbro from It, Bobby Anderson, and Jim Gardner from The Tommyknockers. However, with Lisey's story, Lisey's husband Scott has to be a writer. If the profession changed, then King could certainly continue to explore the grief as he does with Lisey's story, but... Because of the very real-world event that had occurred in 1999, Scott needs to mirror Stephen King's profession in order for it to play to its strengths, which is that this feels like Stephen King's most personal novel to date. And as you may know, in 1999, Stephen King was the recipient of a truly terrible accident which a van slammed into him as he was taking a walk. Stephen King's injuries were so extensive, he did die for a moment, and the recuperation, as he details in his memoir on writing, was extremely painful. It's not hard to imagine that the very real-world fears of death and having to say goodbye to your loved one preys upon his mind during the hours of rehabilitation, and this is the novel in which King takes every thought of the sort that he'd ruminate on and channels it into the story of Lisey Landon, the wife of novelist Scott Landon, who was left alone after the sudden and tragic death of her husband. While there is a supernatural component to it, King could very easily have removed it, and the novel would primarily stay the same. The supernatural component is an extra bonus, as he provides an exploration of how authors and creative types draw their inspiration, which is symbolized by an imaginary pool. I know I just said that it could function as it is without the supernatural component, but it would definitely be less interesting if he'd removed it. While I'd say the thrust of this novel is about grieving and marriage, he still takes time to explore the cost of creativity. In previous episodes, I've touched upon Lisey's story. When it first came out, it was the next publication after Cell, which was billed as King's Return to Horror. So what I wanted was not what I got. I wanted thrills. And instead, I received existential musings on aspects of life that my 20-something self had no familiarity with. So I walked away from Lisey's story feeling cold, but I acknowledged that I didn't go into Lisey's story with the right mindset. So this was a novel that I was very curious about revisiting now that I understood what he was doing with it, and now that I could approach it with an open mind. So I'm going to get to it, uh, but before I get any further, I want to listen, uh, I want to read a listener email from Strauss Monkey. Hi, LCR. I can't write short emails to you. I've tried. So sorry. Just finished listening to your cast on the Night Flyer, and I had to write to you immediately. Thank you so much for including all of us in your mind surf to determine a more fitting sign-off to your episodes. It was wonderful. I laughed out loud saying, yes, that's perfect, as the final phrasing formed itself. You were signing off um, some of your Dark Tower ana analyses, which have been so enjoyable, and don't you just love finding other tower junkies with long days and pleasant nights, and that was almost perfect, but the moon thing, just freaking brilliant. I actually f uh, filled up a little bit at the end when you said, all together now, say it with me, and I did say it with you, and it's perfect. And again, how cool of you to include us in that moment. Thanks, man. I really felt like I was part of something. Strauss Monkey, thank you. I mean, I, I do it... Uh, 
to create a community out there. So I'm glad that you got something out of it. So in short, I'm really a fan. You've got a unique viewpoint, and sometimes you're all over the map, and I love it. Um, I've been such a complete king nerd since I read Salem's Lot in high school, and to hear the details that you dig into, the connections that you make, I can follow everything but keep myself, keep finding myself saying, what? I never thought of that. Um, and this trait of yours to find a different POV has been very consistent throughout. I know I must sound like some... Uh, when I began reading King, people around me expressed feelings that led me to think that they thought I was into something perverted. Seriously, it was crazier than it is now. Oh, you read his books? I've heard he's strange. And no matter what I said about the quality of the book, they gave me the look that said, you should really do that behind a locked door. This was before Psy King became a household world word and before people began studying his canon and realizing just how good craftsmanship Craftsman he actually is, how vivid and unique, and how uniquely American. He belongs to the USA, and damn, I'm proud of that. But it took a little while for the world to catch on to the careful craftsman side to him. He really made the big splash by scaring the bejeebers out of all of us and making us afraid of stuff like red and white cats, cars, St. Bernard's, proms, hotel rooms with certain numbers, and your friendly neighborhood cantoy. All that literary elite stuff came later. After he got our attention with the scare tactics, he moved right on... moved right on in with genuine genius and showed us all that he was writing horror like nobody else had ever written. He made it real. He made it here and now, to quote a certain wolf. He made us afraid um, that these impossibly horrible things could actually happen. What a talent that man has in his head. So to my point, and I do have one, is that I lucked out and got hooked on him by his second book. And there's almost... Nobody to talk to one year that much of a nerd except another nerd. So boy, am I glad that I found your podcast, you big loser nerd. Smiley face. Oh, and really cool reference to Brian Lumley. The Lovecraft reference led me to believe that you've read the Titus Crow books. They are old school wonderful. Ever read the Gorming House trilogy by Mervyn Peake? Also, thank you for including the Joe Hill books. I love Nosferatu. And your review was a lot of fun, very thought-provoking. One more of my, hey, wait a minute moments. I didn't hear it mentioned, but it could be wrong, so forgive me if I'm proceeding on faulty logic here. No one else seems to have said it, but don't you think that the talisman orb is one of the bends of the rainbow? It was clear and white and had the power to heal. It was vaporized and used up in the healing of Lily Queen Laura, so it was gone. But what do you think? I think it was the polar opposite of Black 13, sort of the bend that belonged to the white. Your thoughts? Um, so... Uh, Strauss Monkey, yeah, that's that's a that's a really really interesting thought and one that I had never thought of before. I don't know if that has crossed the mind of of Stephen King and uh, Peter Straub because uh, what is it called in the pages of Black Thirteen, the Globe of Infinity, I think that uh, Munchen calls it. So I think that would have been a good way to tie it into the bends of the rainbow. It's never mentioned, but it doesn't mean that we can't believe. I think that that is a great interpretation. Um, one that I think that I think that uh, I would like to hear what other people have to, to to think about that. So definitely sharing your thoughts at Stephen Kingcast at yahoo.com. And just again, man, thank you just for your your um, support uh, and all the emails. And uh, feel free definitely to to write in again. <clears throat> So anyone, if you have not done so already, feel free to write into stephenkingcast at yahoo.com and to leave a subscription, I'm sorry, to leave a review and a subscription at iTunes because the more subscriptions and reviews that I get, the, the more it, it puts the, the Stephen King cast out there. Okay, guys, so now it's time for uh, the Wikipedia summary so that I have a basis upon which I can build my analysis. Yeah. Lisey's story is the story of Lisey Landon, a widow of a famous and wildly successful novelist, Scott Landon. The book tells two stories, Lisey's story in the present and the story of her dead husband's life, as remembered by Lisey during the course of the novel. It has been two years since her husband's death, and Lisey is in the process of cleaning out her dead husband's writing area. A series of events occurs that causes Lisey to begin facing certain realities about her husband that she has had repressed and forgotten. As Lisey is stalked, terrorized, and then mutilated by an insane fan of her husband's, Lisey begins recalling her husband's past, how he had 
come from a family with a history of horrible mental illness that manifested as either an uncontrollable homicidal mania or as a deep catatonia, how he had a special gift and ability to transport himself to another world, which he called Booyah Moon, how Scott Landon's brother was murdered by his father when his brother manifested an incurable insanity, and finally how Scott Landon murdered his father to save his father from the madness that had finally taken him over. As the novel progresses, we see the complexity of Lisi's marriage to Scott and their deep and abiding love for each other. The novel takes place over a very short period of time, a matter of days, but the real story is told in Lisi's remembrances of her husband, her ability to harness his special power to save herself and her sister, and finally to find the gift that her dead husband had left for her in Booyah Moon, a story just for Lisi, Lisi's story. Analysis, part one, Bool Hunt. So on page three, I'm just going to um, uh, read the opening here on, on page three. To the public eye, the spouses of well-known writers are all but invisible, and no one knew it better than Lisey Landon. Her husband had won the Pulitzer and the National Book Award, but Lisey had given only one interview in her life. This was for the well-known women's magazine that publishes the column, Yes, I'm Married to Him. She spent roughly half of its 500-word length explaining that her nickname rhymed with Cece, most of the other half had to do with her recipe for slow-cooked roast beef. Lisey's sister Amanda said that the picture accompanying the interview made Lisey look fat. So, like I had said earlier, this novel has to play to King's expertise. And right off the bat, he's telling us that we're going to be getting a very, very personal read. We learn most of what we need to know by the time he's finished writing the first page. Our main character is named Lisey, which rhymes with Cece, has sisters, one of whom is named Amanda, who lives alone, like Lisey herself, now that her husband Scott has died two years before. And as King begins his slow, ruminating tale, it becomes very obvious that reading it, it's going to be um, like aggravating an old wound, which has been once again opened and raw. He's able to capture so much with so little from uh, Lisey attempting to move on with her life by cleaning up Scott's study all the while thinking of Amanda and Amanda's life. But anyone that's experienced loss like this will know that it's difficult to go on without thinking of your loss, so it's no surprise that King continues to abruptly veer the narrative back to the loss with the continual reminder that Scott is dead. He continues to weave the melancholic life of the recently widowed Lisi by detailing the little moments of contention that come from having been married to a celebrity. In this case, one that happens to be a renowned author. He said the fact... Um, so he said the fact that she had shared a great American writer's bed did not qualify her to serve as his literary executor that he said was a job for an expert and he understand that and he understood that miss landon had no college degree at all he reminded her of the time already gone since scott landon's death and of the rumors that had continued to grow supposedly there were piles of unpublished landon fiction short stories even novels could she not let him into the study even for a little while let him prospect a bit in the file cabinets and desk drawers if only to set the most outrageous rumors to rest she could stay with him the whole time of course that went without saying. No, she said, showing Professor Woodbury to the door. I'm not ready just yet. Overlooking the man's lower blows, trying to at least, because he was obviously as crazy as the rest of them. He'd just hidden it better for a little longer. And when I am, I'll want to look at everything, not just the manuscripts. But she had nodded seriously to him. Everything's the same. I don't understand what you mean by that. Of course he didn't. It had been a part of her marriage inner language. How many times had Scott come breezing in, calling, Hey, Lisey, I'm home. Everything the same? Meaning, is everything all right? Is everything cool? But like most phrases of power, Scott had explained this once to her, but Lisey had already known it. It had an inside meaning. A man like Woodbury could never grasp the inside meaning of everything the same. Lisey could explain it all day, and he still wouldn't get it. Why? Because he was an incuck. And when it came to Scott Landon, only one thing interested the Inkunks. It doesn't matter was what he had said to, was what she had said to Professor Woodbury on that day five months ago. Scott would have understood. Um, and he does so much here. One, the conflict keeps the novel from sinking under the weight of her loss. Two, it shines a spotlight on both Lisi and Scott as people, actual people, one who was dead and one who was mourning. Rather that there was an entire life. Be behind the photo on the back of the book jacket 
and all that's left of that life is stored in the memories of the woman who shared it. And three, with the catchphrase, and we all know Stephen King loves his catchphrases, of everything's the same, he fills in the abstract concept of marriage with a little phrase that is recognizable to anyone that's ever had a significant other. Yours might not be everything's all right, but I'm sure there's a word or a saying that when spoken is a constant declaration of the bond that you share. For Alicia, it serves as an incantation, and it won't be the last incantation she casts as the story progresses. As he continues to build the tone, he begins to break out the plot, uh, revealing that Scott had secrets, how he was haunted, and wouldn't look into reflective surfaces after the sun went down. He drops this bomb so nonchalantly, it'd be easy to lose... Um, Lose it in the wraparound recollections and fragments of his life, which are still damp with mourning. But when you do pick up on it, it streaks out of this book like a flare gun trail through the night sky. You want to follow the trail to its source. Why? Why wouldn't he want to look into a reflective surface after dark? And what would he find if he did? Throughout this section, King switches off the perspective between Amanda and Lisi, each point of view giving us a different look at Lisi's story. Amanda speaks for all of us when she's angered at her sister's insulting dismissal with photographs, how the focus is on Scott without any room to share with his wife. <clears throat> and he wraps up the first chapter with a heartbreak of a conclusion. Then she was awake and could hear herself in the dark, saying it over and over again like a mantra. I loved you. I saved you. I got you ice. I loved you. I saved you. I got you ice. I loved you. I saved you. I got you ice. She lay there a long time, remembering a hot August day in Nashville and thinking, not for the first time, that being single after being double so long was strange indeed. She would have thought two years was enough time for the strangest to rub off, but it wasn't. Time apparently did nothing but blunt grief's sharpest edge so that it hacked rather than sliced. Because everything was not the same, not outside, not inside, not for her. Lying in the bed that had once held two, Lisi thought alone never felt more lonely than when you woke up and discovered you still had the house to yourself. That you and the mice in the walls were the only ones still breathing. 2. Lisi and the Madman. Darkness loves him. King recounts the time that Scott was shot and he captures it like a memory. Rather than flat out describing what happened, images and sensations float up at Lisi and it's a wonderful experience, never heavy-handed, but always sad. So on page 19, um, she writes, or he writes, she was almost positive he didn't. Nothing about what he'd been down, nothing about when he'd been down on the pavement and they'd both been sure he would never get back up. Well, he was dying, and whatever passed between them then was all there ever would be. They who found so much to say to each other. The neurologist she plucked up courage enough to speak to said that forgetting around the time of a traumatic event was par for the course, that people recovering from such events often discovered that a spot had been turned black in the film of their memories. That spot might stretch over five minutes, five hours, or five days. Sometimes disconnected fragments and images would surface years or even decades later. The neurologist called it a defense mechanism. King continues to establish what had once haunted Scott, while simultaneously presenting two sides of the man, the public figure so carefree and the vulnerable one who had been saved by Lisi. King weaves a story of tragic beauty with creeping horror, detailing the painful, beautiful love between the two, and that of the thing with the piebald side, the long boy. The constant reference to this thing is enough to keep the horror fan reading while any fan with half a heart will be moved through the constant beautiful observations about marriage, like the one on page 36. He looks down at nil but graying earth, and Lisi is subtly terrified that he's saying, seeing it, the thing with the endless patchy piebald side that he is going to go off, perhaps even come back to the break she knows he is afraid of. In truth, she's as afraid of it as he is. Before her heart can do more than begin to speed up, he raises his head, grins like a kid at a country fair, and shoots the handle of the spade through his fist to the halfway point. It's a showy pool shark move, and the folks at the front of the crowd go, ooh, but Scott's not done. Holding the spade out before him, he rotates the handle nimbly between his fingers, accelerating it into an unlikely spin. It's as dazzling as a baton twirler's maneuver, because of the silver scoop swinging in the sun and sweetly unexpected. 
She'd been married to him since 1979 and had no idea he had such a sublimely cool move in his repertoire. How many years does it take, she'll wonder, two nights later, lying in bed alone in her substandard motel room and listening to dogs bark beneath an orange-hot moon, before the simple, stupid wait of accumulating days finally sucks all the wow out of a marriage? How lucky do you have to be for your love to outrace your time? Um, what he does decide to give us... When he does decide to give us the flashback of the shooting, it is, of course, told through Lisi's perspective, which allows us to see how foolish and insignificant his death would have been, as all of Scott's lectures and tour dates just seem so presumptuous. She doesn't judge him for them, and we aren't supposed to dislike him for them, but King certainly doesn't glamorize them either. The scene itself is peppered with wonderful little observations of the key players in the shooting, of the mementos that Lisi was required to hold after Scott has used them, of the pop culture images that flash through her mind when the shooter goes for his gun, the smooth image of Scott getting shot as if it were a dance move rather than a mortal wound, to Lisi's ultimate act which saves her husband's life. The scene isn't thrilling because of its outcome. The scene is thrilling because it tells us so much about Lisi. The aftermath of the shooting is still harrowing, though we know what's going to happen. The references to the long boy, Scott's shuffing sound, the nonsensical words, and Lisey's calm despite the madness and the injuries are all so expertly woven together. The purpose of this chapter is to A. Show us Lisey's strength, B. Conjure the mystery of the long boy, C. Create mythic importance to the novel, the object which she used to fight for her husband's life. And an interesting object it is. It invokes both breaking ground, like at the site of where a house will one day stand, as well as burying. The shovel itself encompasses both life and death. Number three, Lisi and the silver spade, waiting for the wind to change. In Scott's barn, she finds a lost manuscript of her deceased husband's, receives a phone call from her sister Darla about Mandy's turn for the worse, and then the introduction to our villain, Zach McCool, the thug hired by Woodbury who has hired this man threatening Lisi to give over Scott's manuscripts, or so she thinks at the time. Chapter 4, Lisi and the Blood Bull, All the Bad Gunky. We continue to learn about Scott through fragments, each shattered memory giving us a different look at the man, sometimes swashbuckling, but other times, the private times, incredibly haunted and unbalanced, as in the fragment we get here, with the image of Scott emerging from the darkness with a bleeding hand offered to Lisi, repeating the nonsense phrase of Blood Bull. The phrase is almost repeated exactly by Amanda, who had just self-injured again. The story of the blood bull speaks to their young love and Lacey's realization that the man who had stood her up on a date is the man that she fell in love with. Scorned, drunk, elated, and scared, she lashes out at him when he finally arrives, which causes him to demonstrate to her just how fragile he is by smashing a greenhouse window to get a bouquet, believing that the mix of self-injury and the act of giving flowers will redeem him in her eyes. On page 114... King writes, it's for you, he says, as she yanks off her blouse and drapes it around the red and dripping mass, feeling it soak through the cloth at once, feeling the crazy heat of it, and knowing, of course, why that small voice was in such terror of the things she was saying to him. What it knew all along, not only is this man in love with her, he's half in love with death, and more than ready to agree with every mean and hurtful thing anyone ever says about him. Um, just like the blood bull itself, King combines the growing strength of their love with the constant instability of his mind. His demonstration comes not just with blood and injury, but also with a glimpse into a childhood of nonsense and danger. It's a pretty big night for Lisi, as Scott proposes to her, and we first hear about the pool, or the myth pool, or the word pool. Our first glimpse comes on page 125. She nods again, smiling herself. He hasn't, not directly, but she's heard him talk about it at his readings and during the lectures she's audited at his enthusiastic invitation, sitting way at the back of Boardman 101 or Little 112. When he talks about the pool, he always reaches out as if he'd put his hands in it if he could or pull things, language fishes maybe, out of it. She finds it an endearing, boyish gesture. Sometimes he calls it the myth pool, sometimes the word pool. He calls it 
he says that every time you call someone a good egg or a bad apple, you're drinking from the pool or catching tadpoles at its edge. That every time you send a child off to war and danger of death because you love the flag and have taught the child to love it too, you're swimming in that pool. Out deep where the big ones with the hungry teeth also swim. In the present, Lisi awakens to find what appears to be Amanda possessed by Scott. It's not scary and it's not meant to be. Instead, it's haunting in the gothic sense, but with a tinge of fairy tale thrown in. The voice of Scott warns her and speaks in fairy tale nonsense, setting up the momentum for the next section of the novel. Part 2, Sawaza. 5, Lisi and the Long Long Thursday, Stations of the Bool. Lisi begins her bool hunt. And as she and Darla take Mandy to a hospital, Lisi thinks back to the memory when Scott had let her in on the mysteries of the Bool. Chapter 6, Lisi and the Professor. This is what it gets you. The previous chapter ends with Lisi finding a dead cat stuck to the mailbox, a warning from Zach McCool. This prompts Lisi to call Woodbury, having had enough, and after threatening him, she realizes that the story given to her from McCool wasn't the truth after all. It turns out that McCool's real name is Dooley, a drinking buddy of Woodbury, who has taken it upon himself to get the manuscripts. Lisi had called Woodbury, hoping that the man who tightened his leash on the cat killer, only to find out that there's no leash to tighten. Chapter 7, Lisi and the Law. Obsession and the Exhausted Mind. After Lisi calls upon the help of our old friend Norris Ridgwick, only to get our other old friend Andy Clutterbuck, we get a little more about the snowy memory of the time Scott filled her in on the bull hunts and of their time spent in Germany, represented through the bed which now sits unused in the barn. The bed comes with the memories of a low point in their marriage, of frustration and dissatisfaction. It's a part of the novel that has always stuck with me because it's probably the most important detail Kings provides in his, imagine, his, his examination of marriage. Through we've been given the memories of a strong marriage, with a widow who had loved her husband and the husband always grateful to his wife who had saved him. But with the bed and Germany, King is able to give it some more texture, some truthful texture, that in the journey of marriages, there's going to be lulls. This provides even more honesty in what has been, until this point, a very, still, a very honest examination of a marriage. Chapter 8, Lisi and Scott, Under the Yum Yum Tree. Here, Lisi has had enough of searching for the blood bulls and in her rage lashes out <clears throat> against the ghost of Scott uh, for the stations that he's making her find, for the strangeness he brought to their marriage, and for dying in the first place. The scavenger hunt, by the way, is one of the major components to another great examination of marriage, the deliciously dark Gone Girl. After much teasing, we finally get the flashback to the snowy day under the yum-yum tree, which is a truly magical moment. While the woods fill with snow, Scott takes her beneath the boughs of a nearby tree. And he writes, But no, it's better than that because it doesn't smell of ancient wood and damp magazines and moldy old mouse shit. It's as if he'd taken her into an entirely different world, pulled her into a secret circle, a white-roofed dome that belongs to nobody but them. It's about 20 feet across. In the center is the trunk of the willow. The grass growing out from it is still the perfect green of summer. We eventually learn of his older brother's death by his father's rifle and his father's death by Scott himself. According to Scott, there are two types of those with Scott's condition, the bad gunky and the goners, which refer to the catatonic-like Amanda. Chapter 9, Lisi and the Black Prince of the Inkunks, The Duty of Love. Lisi is attacked to by Jim Dooley, tied up, and the chapter concludes with her beginning to be tortured. Chapter 10, Lisi and the Arguments Against Insanity, The Good Brother. What Lisi endures is both inventive and awful. A can opener to the breast? That's pretty brutal. And I wonder what we get out of this. Was this act of violence necessary? It's an interesting question to raise because Stephen King has written some truly horrible acts of violence against his characters, but this one stands out specifically because so much of this novel is stripped of supernaturalism and grandeur. With the novel functioning in a very recognizable reality, an act of violence like this stands out, which I'm sure is the intent, but I question its placement nevertheless. From there we get the unending origin story of Scott and the Booyah Moon, or of his father and his brother Paul, how Paul became feral and was chained in the cellar like an animal. 
it's nicely written. It just goes on forever. And frankly, I'm just not into it. Here's the problem with the premise of Lisi's story. By its very nature, it's Lisi's perspective of another person's life. The problem with that is that as long as King provides the details of that other person's life through that person talking about it, it's never going to be as interesting as if you showed it to us, which wouldn't work because, after all, it's Lisi's story. And there's the conflict. At this point, I should have been racing through each page because I couldn't wait to find out what happens next. Instead, I found myself racing through each page because I couldn't wait to finish it. And not for a good reason. Chapter 11, Lisi and the Pool. Shh, now you must be still. It begins with uh, Lisi remembering her first visit to Booya Moon, which is well rendered on page 321. She closed her eyes, saw only brilliant purple, and could have cried for frustration. Instead, she thought, Sawiza, baby love, strap on when it seems appropriate, and tightened her grip on the handle of the spade. She saw herself swinging it. She saw it glitter in the hazy August sun, and when the purple parted before it, snapping back like skin after a slash, and what it let out wasn't blood but light, amazing orange light that filled her heart and mind with a terrible mixture of joy, terror, and sorrow. No wonder she had repressed this memory all these years. It was too much, far too much. That light seemed to give the fading air of evening a silken texture, and the cry of a bird struck her ear like a pebble made of glass. A cap of breeze filled her nostrils with a hundred exotic perfumes. Um, Frangiapini, Bougainvillea, dusty roses, and oh dear God, night-blooming Sirius. Most of all, what pierced her was the memory of his skin on her skin, the beat of his blood running in counterpoint against the beat of her own, for they had been lying naked in their bed at the antlers and now knelt naked in the purple lupin near the top of the hill, naked in the thickening shadows of the sweetheart trees. And rising above one horizon came the orange mansion of the moon, bloated and burning cold, while the sun sank below the other, boiling in a crimson house of fire. She thought that the mixture of furious light would kill her with its beauty. Lying on the widow's bed with the spade clamped in her hands, a much older Lisi cried out in joy for what was remembered and grief for what was gone. Her heart was mended even if it, even if it was broken again cords stood out on her necks on her neck her swollen lips drew down and broke open exposing her teeth and spilling fresh blood into the gutters of her gums tears ran from the corners of her eyes and slipped down her cheeks to her ears where they hung like exotic jewelry and the only clear thought in her mind was oh scott we were never made for such beauty we were never made for such beauty we should have died then oh my dear we should have naked and in each other's arms like lovers in a story but we didn't, Lisi murmured. He held me and said we couldn't stay long because it was getting dark and it wasn't safe after dark. Even most of the sweetheart trees turned bad then. But he said there was something he wanted. While in Buya Moon, Lisi express, expresses the overpowering beauty of the place, how it's too much, and proceeds to tell Paul to hurry up in finishing the story of how he buried his brother and says... So if our time is short, for once in your smucking life, you be short. Tell me how you buried him. But both King and Scott ignore the titular character as they say, um, I covered him with grass and then I went home. I couldn't come back for almost a week. I was sick. I had a fever. Daddy, give me oatmeal in the morning and soup when he come home from work. I was a scared of Paul's ghost. But I never seen his ghosts. Then I got better and tried to come here with daddy's shovel from the shed. But it wouldn't go. Just me. I thought the animals... No, sorry. I thought the aminals... Animals... Would have eaten on him. The laughers and such. But they didn't yet. So I went back and tried to come over again. This time with a play shovel I found in our old toy box in the attic. That went... And that's when I dug his grave with, Lisi, a red plastic play shovel we had in the sandbox when we was very wee. He just won't shut up. He just won't stop talking. Um, then, uh, I mean, all you have to say, I buried him with a red plastic play shovel. That's all you had to say. That's it. That's it, Scott. The end. Then, 
after long last, uh, Lisi ventures to Booyah Moon alone. Um, and we get King on his game, guys, bringing the setting to life, and it really is wonderfully uh, described. The stairs end in a down-sloping ramp running to her left that finally empties at ground level. Here, a beach of fine white sand glimmers in the rapidly failing light. Above the beach, carved on the step backs into a rock wall, are perhaps 200 long, curved stone benches that look down on the pool. There might be space for a thousand or even two thousand people here if they were seated side by side, but they're not. She thinks there can be no more than 50 or 60 in all, and most of them are hidden in gauzy wrappings that look like shrouds. But if they're dead, how can they be sitting? Does she even want to know? On the beach, standing scattered, are maybe two dozen more, and a few people, six or eight, are actually in the water. They wade silently. As Lisi reaches the bottom of the steps and begins making her way towards the beach, her feet treading easily along the sunken rut of a path many other feet have walked on before her, she sees a woman bend over and begin to lave her face. She does this with slow gestures as if someone in a dream, and Lisi recalls that day in Nashville how everything fell into slow motion when she realized Blondie meant to shoot her husband. That was also like a dream, but it wasn't. Then she sees Scott. He's sitting on a stone bench nine or ten rows up from the pool. He's still got good Ma's African, only here it's not bundled around him because it's too warm. It's just drawn across his knees with the balance puddled over his feet. She doesn't know how the African can be both here and in the house on the view at the same time and thinks, maybe it's because some things are special the way that Scott is special. Chapter 12, Lisi at Greenlawn, the Hollyhocks. In one of the more redundant parts of the story, Lisi returns to Booyah Moon, having just left, this time to save Mandy, who envisioned it not as a pool but as a harbor. It's a nice description and a good way to show how differently everyone sees the water, but couldn't King have combined the two scenes into one? Chapter 3, Lisi and Amanda, a sister thing. Now that she's busted Mandy out of the loony bin, they devise a plan to get rid of Jim Dooley. And the two of them have a wonderful conversation about Booyah Moon starting on page 386. Amanda lifted the leasy hand closest to her and planted a kiss on it. Truly, it was as light as a butterfly's wing before replacing it on the steering wheel. I like to think so, too. It's a funny place, Southwind. When you're there, it seems as real as anything in this world and better than everything in this world. But when you're here, she shrugged wistfully, Lisi thought, then it's only a moonbeam. Lisi thought of lying in bed with Scott at the antlers, watching the moon struggle to come out, listening to his story, and then going with him. Going. Amanda asked, what did Scott call it? Booyah moon. Amanda nodded. I was at least close, wasn't I? You were. I think most kids have a place they go to when they're scared or lonely or just plain bored. They call it Neverland or the Shire, Booyah Moon, if they got a big imagination and make it up for themselves. Most of them forget. The talented few, like Scott, harness their dreams and turn it into horses. More importantly, uh, despite all of its adversity, they celebrate life itself in a very beautiful passage on page 390. Lisi's was the only car in the parking lot and the picnic area was deserted. Not even a single backpacker getting high on nature or Montpelier gold. Amanda walked towards one of the picnic tables. The soles of her feet were very pink. And even with the sun hidden, she was clearly nude under the green pajamas. Amanda, do you really think that's... If someone comes, I'll nip right back into the car. Mandy looked back over her shoulder and flashed a grin. Try it. The grass feels positively slinky. Lacey walked to the edge of the pavement on the balls of her feet, then stepped into the green. Amanda was right. Slinky was the one, the perfect fish from Scott's pool of words. And the view to the west was a straight shot to the eye and heart. Thunderheads were pouring towards them through the ragged teeth of the White Mountains, and Lisi counted seven dark spots where the high slopes had been smudged away by calls of rain. Brilliant lightning flashed inside those storm bags and between two of them, connecting them like some fantastic fairy bridge. It was a double rainbow that arched over Mount Cranmore in a frayed loophole of blue. 
As Lacey watched that hole close and another over the same mountain whose name she did not know opened and the rainbow reappeared. Below them, Castle Lake was a dirty dark gray and little kin pond beyond it was a dead black goose eye. The wind was rising, but it was improbably warm, and when her hair lifted from her temples, Lisi lifted her arms as though she would fly, not on a magic carpet, but on the ordinary alchemy of a summer storm. Manda, she said, I'm glad I'm alive. So am I, Amanda said seriously and held out her hands. The wind blew back her graying hair and made it fly like a child's. Lacey closed her fingers carefully around her sisters, trying to be mindful of Amanda's cuts but aware of a rising wildness in herself all the same. Thunder cracked overhead, the warm wind blew harder, and ninety miles to the west, Thunderheads streamed through the ancient mountain passes. Amanda began to dance, and Lacey danced with her, their bare feet in the grass, their linked hands in the sky. Yes! Thunder cracked, and Lisi had to yell it. Yes, what? Amanda hollered back. She was laughing again. Yes, I mean to kill him. That's what I said. I'll help you, Amanda shouted, and the rain began, and they ran back to their car, both of them laughing and holding their hands over their heads. Chapter 14. Lisi and Scott, Baby Love. After all this time, we finally get the truth about Scott's death, which turns out as a result of a gestating plot point that was buried under flashbacks and descriptions of insanity, and the point is, is that Scott finally ate fruit after sunset. It's a touching goodbye that allows current-day Lisi and us enough closure for her to find the strength to combat her own long boy, John Dooley. Chapter 15, Lisi and the Long Boy, Pafco at the Wall. Dooley makes his play, which results with him getting eaten alive by the long boy and Booyah Moon. Part 3, Lisey's story. Chapter 16, Lisey and the story tree. Scott has his say. Back in Booyah Moon, Lisey reads the truth of what happened to Scott's father, but... Really, at this point, who cares? It has no bearing on the plot or Lisey herself. It's a leftover plot thread from the life of Scott Landon, and that doesn't answer a mystery that applies to the present. It's a strangely out-of-place story beat that doesn't land in any emotional way because it's so far removed from any of the following plot points the novel had spent time addressing. 1. Lisey's relationship with Scott. 2. Jim Dooley's threat towards Lisey. 3. Lisey's relationship with Mandy. 4. The lore of Southwind upon Mandy. However, once she's done in Booyah Moon, King gives us a strong goodbye as he closes the book where he'd begun it, in Scott's study. Here, Lisi is done with the room and symbolically ready to move on with her life. She says goodbye to Scott and reclaims that life. So, let's talk about life. For a novel that spins out of a major death, this is a novel about life. What he gets right about this book over and over and over again are the little things. Uh, family uh, phrase um, of scrids rather than scraps. Uh, Lisey staring off, lost in her thoughts. Nonsensical publications um, like Pushpelt dreamed up by aspiring English majors. It's the little phrases he comes up with, hallmarks of his writing style that serve to strengthen this story. And each time he drops one, I was lost in the dark and you found me. I was hot, so hot, and you gave me ice, and everything's the same. Uh, do wonders to personalizing the story, providing an intimacy with these characters where such phrases hold so much weight. As do the, you know, I mean, then we have others. Uh, waiting for the wind to change, strap it on. I mean, the novel hinges on massive ideas, like dark tower-level concepts, myth pools that exist from where each of us, we draw our creativity and imagination. That is an incredibly large concept, but it's never the focus. The focus remains squarely on Lisi and her life, which includes Scott. Had it been Scott's story, maybe the novel would have shifted its focus. Maybe it would have been more of an adventure. We'll never know. Instead, we have a story about life, and of love, and of marriage, with a description of how Scott sleeping in the fetal position is more important than the pool will ever be. That's the way that should be. And even though he's dead, King makes it seem as if Scott is never really gone, as Lisi exists with one foot in the past as well as one in the present. What he does here is not unlike what he had done with It, providing two narratives, each in their own time period, except the decision in It was designed to section off two different plot points, whereas here, it's about getting to know the man who meant so much to our main character. 
furthermore, it's an effective way, and it's an effective way to place us in Lisi's shoes. Scott was so much a part of her life, she's finding it difficult to exist without him. His constant presence uh, reinforces the bond that the two of them had shared. Now, let's talk about the Booyah Moon. Um, now, under the, the, the magical scene of the Yum Yum Tree in the snowy New England Hampshire forest, King allows Scott to begin telling his story, and he begins with the pool on page 224. Scott, meanwhile, has lit another Herbert Territon with his hands that are shaking just the smallest bit. I'll tell you a story, he says, just one story and let it stand for all the stories of a certain man's childhood, because stories are what I do. He looks at the rising cigarette smoke. I net them from the pool. I told you about the pool, right? Yes, Scott, and we all go down to drink. Yep, and cast our nets. Sometimes, the really brave fisher folk, the Austins, the Doskoyevskys, the Faulkners, even launch boats and go out to where the big ones swim, but that pool is tricky. It's bigger than it looks, it's deeper than any man can tell, and it changes its aspect, especially after dark. She says nothing to this. His hand slips around her neck. At some point, it steals inside her unzipped parka to cup her breast. Not out of lust, she's quite sure, for comfort. All right, she says, story time. Close your eyes, little Lisey. She closes them. For a moment, all is dark as well as silent under the yum-yum tree, but she isn't afraid. There's the smell of him and the bulk of him beside her. There's the feel of his hand currently resting on the rod of her collarbone. He could choke her easily with that hand, but she doesn't need to, him to tell her he'd never hurt her, at least not physically. This is just something that Lisey knows. He will cause her pain, yes, but mostly with his mouth, with his everlasting mouth. Later, uh, King starts to flesh out the truth of the pool when um, Lisi visits it um, on her own on page 338. Um, she also knows that this is a sad place. It's the pool where we all go down to drink, to swim, to catch a little fish from the edge of its shore, but it's also the pool where some hardy souls go out in their flimsy wooden boats after the big ones. It's the pool of life, the cup of imagination, and she has an idea that different people see different versions of it, but with two things ever in common. It's always about a mile deep in the fairy forest, and it's always sad, because imagination isn't the only thing this place is about. It's also about giving in, waiting, just sitting, and looking out over those dreamy waters and waiting. It's coming, you think. It's coming soon. I know it is. But you don't know exactly what, and so the years passed. The pool itself changes depending on who is looking at it. For instance, Mandy interprets it as a harbor known as Southwind. For Scott, it's Booyah Moon. Whatever you want to call it, it's the pool of inspiration, and with it, King is able to discuss the supernatural origin of all of creativity, which he's able to get into in a little bit more detail on page um, 418. In the, in the other room, Amanda laughed at something in the movie. Lisi smiled a little herself. She didn't believe Scott had exactly planned all of this. He didn't even plan his books, as complex as some of them were. Plotting them, he said, would take out all of the fun. He claimed that for him, writing a book was like finding a brilliantly colored string in the grass and following it to see where it might lead. Sometimes the string broke and left you with nothing. But sometimes, if you were lucky, if you were brave, if you persevered, it brought you to a treasure. And the treasure was never the money you got for the book. The treasure was the book. Lisi supposed that Roger Dash Mills of the world didn't believe it, and the Joseph Woodbury's thought that it had to be something grander, more exalted, but Lisi had lived with him, and she believed it. Writing a book was a bull hunt. What he'd never told her, but she supposed he'd always guessed it, that if the string didn't break, it always led back to the beach, back to the pool where we all go down to drink, to cast our nets, to swim, and sometimes to drown. So that to me is, I mean, King has always stated that he, he really lets his characters um, show him the way in his books, and it's, it's fun for him to find out where these stories will go. So that to me is just an encapsulation of, of his own beliefs in writing. So guys, let's talk about something that um, that he really touches upon in this book, uh, and that's mental health. 
King has written about madness on many occasions. Carrie White uh, snapped and went into a fugue, snake, uh, fugue state. Her mother, Margaret, was, um, I don't really know what you would diagnose her as, schizophrenic, borderline personality, I don't know. Um, Jack Torrance descended into madness. Greg Stilson was a sociopath, as was Todd Bowden. Annie Wilkes had mental health issues. Thad Beaumont suffered from depression. Uh, Judy Marshall slipped further and further away from reality. Though King has written of quote-unquote crazy characters for decades, this is the first time he's actually exploring mental health. It's built into the novel almost immediately. Because the novel has so much to do with marriage, we understand why we meet Lisi right away. But as soon as we meet Lisi, we also meet Mandy, which reveals that this is as much a story about mental health as it is about marriage. Through the characters of both Mandy and Scott, King explores the sensation of being forced to walk on ice that's thin only for you, while everyone else shows no signs of cracking. How challenging it must be. How skillful one has to become in order to prevent from breaking through at any given moment. And like falling through the ice, it requires someone having to pull you out, the other person getting wet and cold in the process, showing us that when the ice breaks, we all go through it. This is the life that comes with living with someone who suffers from mental health disorders. Look at Scott and the traumatic childhood through which he suffered. It gave him, and I'll talk about this in a little bit, shared psychosis of a magical world and illogical rules that followed him into adulthood. He can't eat fruit after sunset. He can't look into a mirror. He has to cut himself as a sacrifice to others. Specifically, King is commenting on self-injury here. I don't know how... Uh, popular isn't the right word, but how widespread cutting was when this novel was written, but it affects a large portion of our youth, so this novel is something that definitely resonates today. Both Scott and Mandy are characters presented to the reader as having a history with cutting. Scott's reasoning for cutting is mythologized. It's wrapped up in a greater story, and there's a supernatural component to it when he cuts in order to let the bad gunky out. Though there might be a supernatural component to it, it's a great metaphor to explain the emotional process of self-mutilation, an act which causes the building anxiety, depression, or negative emotion to um, let out through the act itself. With the story of Scott's family, one interpretation is that all of this is simply a delusion that has been passed around like a virus. If that's the case, the world of Booyah Moon is only the figment of their shared imagination, the fever dream of a burning mind concocted and first believed by Scott's father, then later he and his brother, and lastly, Lisi herself. And why wouldn't Lisi fall into the clutches of mass hysteria? Mandy points, um, you know, Mandy points us towards mental problems in the family, so who's to say that Lisi doesn't suffer herself? She is our narrator, after all, and with so much being written of mental health issues, it's hard not to imagine that this is simply an example of shared psychosis presented to us from the perspective of an unreliable narrator. More so, King draws the connection between mental illness and the artistic spirit, suggesting that either the price of imagination and inspiration is insanity, or what we think is insanity is simply the result of the sacrifice that comes from being imaginative. Booyah Moon is presented as a trap, a watery siren that beckons its sensitive victims to stare at its lure, such as the cost of living in imagination life. All the qualities to mental illness is embodied by the long boy that is referenced throughout the novel, but only truly seen at the end. As King writes, when you see it, there is not past or future, only present. When you see the long boy, there is only, oh dear Jesus, there is only a single moment of now, drawn out like an agonizing note that never ends. This combined with the description of, it sees me and my life will never truly be mine again. It won't let it be mine. I can't think of a better way to describe the trapping of mental illness, where depending on what disorder a person suffers from, he or she can have moments, days, weeks, months, or years of what appears to be health. But in truth, the illness, the long boy, is lying in wait, just out of sight. And when it arrives, the illness is all there is, all-encompassing. So let's talk about Easter eggs. Um, the first is uh, we have Castle View. Right, so Castle View uh, is is where the story takes place, and 
Um, Castleview is the 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 seat of of uh, Castle Rock, Stephen King's most famous um, fictional town. We have Dark Score Lake, a reference to the lake that had been an integral role in this novel's companion or twinner, uh, Bag of Bones. Norris Ridgwick and Andy Clutterbuck. Uh, when Lisey finally calls the police, she calls the Castle Rock Police Department asking for Sheriff Norris Ridgwick, who we learn has just gotten married. Good for Norris! And has transferred to Deputy Andy Clutterbuck. These, of course, are characters that we have seen as far back um, in the pages of The Dark Half. Number four, Kingdom Hospital. Um, at one point, there was a reference to going to Kingdom Hospital. Now, at this time, Stephen King was working on the adaptation of the Danish television miniseries Kingdom, uh, translated to American screens by Stephen King and ABC, maybe, as uh, Kingdom Hospital, unfortunately, an unsuccessful venture. Um, into the, the world of horror. Now, the Kingdom, from what I remember, was it Lars von Trier? I don't remember exactly who did it, but I remember watching it probably around like 1996. Um, and I remember it being one of the most dreamy and um, just just every, every shot is just saturated with wrongness and dread and there's a surrealness to it and a dream logic to it, very Lynchian at times and just... Um, it's just, it's not built to King's strengths and it just, it was not King's best. And I understand why he'd be drawn to the property. I mean, he watched it when he was in the hospital recuperating. He was like, man, hospitals suck. I would love to translate this for American audiences. But I mean, giving us a talking aardvark and some of the inclusions that, that he gives us just don't work. And, um, I, I think that's something about the, the kingdom uh, as as given to us by the uh, the, the original uh, European version, the fact that the culture is so old and this 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 hospital is built on moors where so many people had died, it's just a pervasive evilness that's built on anguish that we just don't have um, uh, here in our country. Not 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 the ancient not the ancient history that that Europe has, and it's just part of the, the DNA. So if you haven't seen The Kingdom, I would strongly check it out. I haven't revisited it since I saw it. It might not hold up, I don't know, but I remember when I first watched it, I was thoroughly affected. Um, and I was very excited when King was gonna, you know, do the remake, but I the, the ultimate result was that it just wasn't very good. But anyway, there is a reference to Kingdom Hospital. Number five, Shooter's Knob, Tennessee. This is where Jim Dooley is from, which is also the home of Jim Shooter from Secret Window, Secret Garden. Stephen King-isms. Now, here are tricks and traits and tropes, um, the patterns in Stephen King's writing. Um, and the first one that we have is marriage. Um, specifically, at one point, he writes, each marriage has two hearts, one light and one dark. And this he explores in much, much greater detail in um, A Good Marriage, uh, the, the concluding story in... Um, Full Dark No Stars, uh, which is just Stephen King at his most, his darkest and most pessimistic. Um, number two is the catchphrase, and the catchphrase is, it's too much. Uh, it, this is the, if you listen to my Storm of the Century review, then you know that I talked a lot about how annoying Andre Linoge is. Well, this is Andre Linoge on steroids because we have baby love, smuck, strap it on, waiting for the wind to change, the incux, bool, sawaza, bad gunky, spending a penny, bearing a Quaker, and there's more. It just goes on and it's like, okay, I get it. It personalizes this story. In our lives, we have we have um, verbal shortcuts and we have our nicknames and we have our catchphrase. Like, we, we have all of that. And so, yes, I, I completely understand why he's doing what he's doing he does it effectively it's just a personal thing for me that it just kind of it gets annoying after a while like when you know you know she's a goner and you know got all the bad gunky got to go to bula moon and you got the bull and got to get this bull it's just it's too much it gets really really uh it just takes me out of what should be a very personal and lovely story about love and marriage and instead it just gets weighed down with these cheesy sounding names 
Number three, abusive father down the well. Uh, we have first seen this in the pages of Dolores Claiborne. Number four, torture at the hands of a crazy fan. Here we have Jim Dooley, but first, most famously, we saw with um, Annie Wilkes and Paul Sheldon. Number five, siblings in the basement. Uh, Paul being in the cellar is reminiscent of Zelda in the basement from um, Pet Cemetery. We have inscapes. Uh, the way that the Booyah Moon functions, this is what Joe Hill would call an inscape, um, which we get a lot more of in Nosferatu. Uh, number seven is flipping to another world. Of course, we have seen this most famously with um, with the talisman. Number eight, uh, numbers adding up to 13. Scott's hospital room is 319, which adds up to the number 13, uh, much like the short story 1408. Uh, furthermore, with the room number, we have the number 19, uh, which uh, should be familiar to Dark Tower fans. Number nine, it. Uh, at one point, Scott refers to the Longboy as it. And number 10 is Deep Space Cowboy. The term Deep Space Cowboy was referenced heavily in Gerald's game. Here, it's a term that Lisi and Scott use to refer to the crazies out there. Final thoughts. So, for a book about marriage, um, I would say that this is it's fitting that it functions as a companion piece to Bag of Bones. It's the I would say it's the feminine story to... Um, or not the feminine story, but it's it's the female um, companion to Bag of Bones uh, male um, story uh, because both both books uh, revolve around um, the life of a writer. One in Bag of Bones is about the the, the writer. In Lisey's story, it's about the wife of the writer. Both characters are mourning the loss of their partner. Um, both stories deal very heavily with the creative process. Both stories uh, deal with the past and its impact upon the present as they try to move into the future. And both uh, involve bodies of water that play a significant part to the story. So... I said in Bag of Bones that it was a very personal novel. It was where he started to get very, very introspective and what I think kicked off his his existential phase, um, which he, he, he kind of stepped away from, got into uh, the Dark Tower. You know, he had his, his injury. But now with Lisey's story, he's starting to come back to it. He gets more into it with, with Duma Key, and he continues that trend, um, and we'll see it again with, with Revival uh, when that came out in 2014. So... When King is able to bring it, he's able to bring it, and he does some lovely work uh, with with um, with Lisi's story. Now, in the end, this might be Stephen King's most important novel that he's ever written. I mean, it's about the secret place within our minds where we can go to reach the source of all imagination. For someone as prolific as Stephen King, this concept is one with limitless possibilities. If there was ever a time to go big, this was it. Instead, he hides it within a love story. And the focus of the novel explores the truth of a marriage. That's our A theme. Booyah Moon and the Pool is always the B theme, which is a shame. Because the book is never about Booyah Moon. It never lives up to the promise of Booyah Moon. And what he could do with it, if he did with imagination, what he did with the genre of horror with it with the end of the world, with the stand, with domestic abuse in The Shining, with the secret life of a writer in Dark Half, of gentrification in Salem's Lot, etc. He could have done that for imagination, what he had done for so many other topics, but he doesn't. It's a, I don't want to say a throwaway part because it's not. It's, it's, it's definitely important to this novel, but this novel is about love. It's about marriage. It's about the life that we live with someone else and um, how that other person comes to to shape us and and help us be our best and and what do we do when that person is gone um, and that's really what what it's supposed to be um, and is so effective in that regards I just because there is the the, the ghost of what it could be um, I, I think that, that that hangs over my reading of it um, and then I'm just going to finish up here with our uh, most important uh, textual excerpt, which we have on page 332. 
That was her voice, but it was almost his, a very good imitation, so Lisi closed her eyes and felt the first warm tears, almost comforting, slip out through the screen of lashes. There was a lot they didn't tell you about death she had discovered, and one of the biggies was how long it took the ones you loved most to die in your heart. It's a secret, Lisi thought, and it should be, because who would ever want to get close to another person if they knew how hard the letting go part was? In your heart, they only die a little at a time, don't they? Like a plant when you go away on a trip and forget to ask a neighbor to poke in once in a while with the old watering can. And it's so sad. Alright guys, so Lisi's story, like I said, it is an important novel, and it was one that I was really interested in getting back to. But unfortunately, it was one that I had a hard time with. Um, the examinations on love um, are really on point. It's beautiful. But as a narrative, I just I couldn't I couldn't really get behind it because it is a story where the main character is not as active as she could be because she's constantly defined by the story of Scott, which is partially the point. But I feel as though it could have been rendered in a way where she, I don't know, I just feel like she's saddled by the baggage of the man and we are saddled by the baggage of the, the character. So the, the conclusion, I mean, the, 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 the name of the book is Lisi's story. It is Lisi's story. The, the title of the, the story that he gives her in Booyah Moon is Lisi's story, but it's about his father. It's not Lisi's story. And that's the problem is that it's Scott's story told through Lisi, and that's that's a problem that, that I have with it. Um, but I don't know. Uh, maybe I read it wrong, and I know that a lot of you love it. Uh, so please uh, write in and uh, share your thoughts on Lisi's story by writing to uh, stephenkingcast at yahoo.com. So if this is the story of um, loved ones and husbands and wives. Stephen King's next book, which I'll be exploring next week, is Duma Key, um, which picks up thematically from Lisi's story, where Lisi, um, where King concludes the story, Lisi is about to move on and um, begin her second act um, of life. And in Duma Key, it's all about second chances and restarting your life. And if Lisi's story is about marriage and your partner then Duma Key is really um really about fathers and daughters so it's it's an interesting ex extension of what he begins with Lisi's story so make sure that you stick around next week for that so everyone um may you have long days and pleasant nights and i will see you here next week where m-o-o-n spells Stephen King. Together we will float into the mystic.